Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but today, of course, we are here for Phil Lapsley, um, who, you, who has been on NPR, the New York Times, who has 11 patents. And I was particularly excited for this event because, God, I remember being in high school. I had my hacker boyfriend who I was always trying to talk into, you know, um, let's get like fake identities while we're underage and they can't do anything about it. And then if we ever break the law, we can get away. But he was only a hacker for good. And apparently none of my ideas were good. But he always had... <laughs> a great big bag full of broken phones that he could put together to do everything beyond my imagination. And um, ever since, I've been amazed by it. And um, I'm so excited for this book. It has been wonderfully well-reviewed. Um, it has been called authoritative, jaunty and enjoyable, highly engaging, fun to read, easy to understand, a love letter, a first-rate chronicle, a secret history of the internet, a technological love story, a generation-spanning epic, and a fascinating book. Let's give a warm round of applause. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and thank you all for coming and spending your Monday night with me. Um, I'm really excited to, this is the first, uh, the first stint on the book tour, so I'm really excited to, to get a chance to share this with you. Um, and I thought instead of reading from the book, because you're all going to buy the book, Right. <laughs> um, instead of reading from the book, I would just give you kind of a little slideshow um, and take you to. My, this is like this is like when your parents, um, you know, said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna see our go to our neighbor's house and we're gonna watch slides from their vacation." This is my vacation to Phone Freakistan, which I spent three years in. Um, and I, you know, for the research on this book, I interviewed a whole lot of people. I also spent years filing Freedom of Information Act requests or FOIA requests, and. That turns out to be an, an entirely a rat hole in and of itself. But one of the things which is really cool about FOIA requests is when the FBI takes these documents and scans them in and they email them or send you a, a CD-ROM with the images, uh, the pages, when they deal with images, when they deal with pictures, you get this amazing effect. And let me show you what I mean. 
And this is from an FBI file. And to me, it really sums up, I mean, first off, I just think it's just sort of beautiful in terms of the black and white quality of it, but it sums up what is so weird about this whole phone freaking thing, right, of kids playing with the telephone and then, you know, later mobsters and all sorts of other people, is how do we as a society come to a world in which a telephone receiver has an FBI evidence tag on it, right? That's just so strange to me. Was it used to bludgeon somebody to death? No, it was used to commit a crime, and that crime was, in this case, this is from a 1972 case, of making free phone calls. And so I, 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 every time I look at this photo, it just makes me wonder, like, how does this happen? How do we get to a world where, where somebody playing around with a phone can be a crime? And I was thinking, trying to, to unwind that and figure out, well, what are the things that drive that? To understand this, you have to kind of go back in time. You have to go back to the 1950s or the 1960s. And in the so how many people here are Verizon customers for their, for their cell phone? Okay, a handful. Singular, anybody? One, okay. AT&T? Bunch, okay. You guys have choices of your phone company. You didn't used to have that. You used to just be pretty much one phone company, the phone company, AT&T. Remember a time when phones weren't cell phones, but were much larger than your cell phones, were on the desk and were stamped, <laughs> if this thing would move, come on, go. Technology. I hate technology. We'll do this. <laughs> we're stamped in metal, not printed, but stamped in metal. Bell system property, not for sale. Right? You couldn't own your own phone. You rented your phone from the phone company. There was one phone company, and in fact, um, if you wanted to have multiple phones in your house, you paid the phone company for an additional extension. Right? So imagine that world. Now imagine, even harder to imagine, a world where phone calls are actually expensive. And I promise this is the only graph I will show you tonight. Um, this is the cost of a five-minute call from New York to San Francisco during the day. Remember when there were rates, different day, evening, night rates? During the day, this is expressed in constant dollars. So I'd like to direct your attention to the upper left-hand corner there. Um, 1950, 1955, 1960, 20 or $25 as of the year 2000 to make a five-minute phone call, right? So you have this world where you can't own your own phone. Phone calls are really expensive. But the real thing that did it, I think, is this. If you look at this, if you're like most people, you look at that, it's a rotary phone, right? Okay, whatever, it's a rotary phone. There's a phone freak, a guy named Evan Doorbell, and he said, he said, the telephone was not something enough, it was, it, there was not something that was interesting enough to be interested in at all, unless you had a certain kind of brain. If you had a certain kind of brain, you looked at that and you didn't see a telephone, you saw a puzzle. You saw this thing, this is the highest tech piece of equipment that was in your house in 1960 or 1970, other than maybe your television set or your radio. And you looked at that if you had this certain kind of brain, and you said, how does this work? There's a pair of wires that go out to it, and I can dial calls. How, do, how does that all work? And there was really no way to figure this stuff out, other than by playing around with it. So if you were a curious kid, this was a puzzle for you. There was one other thing that was going on during this time, which is, in the old days, when you wanted to make a long-distance phone call, you picked up your phone, and you dialed the operator and you said long distance, and you'd be connected to someone like this. And it was always a she back in the day. And if you said, well, I'm in Florida and I want to call California, 
um, the operator would say, okay, and it might take three or four connections. So the operator in Florida would maybe get you to Atlanta. From Atlanta, it might go to Salt Lake City. From Salt Lake City, and it, and it was literally people putting cords into jacks and getting people, you know, one human talking to the next human down the chain. This worked pretty well in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And during that time, the bell system had maybe 100,000 operators, right? Which is a big number, but it's a number that you can make to work if you're the phone company. But they had a problem, which is the phone, com the phone was getting more and more popular. And they said, well, by 1970, we forecast that we're going to need a million operators. There's two problems with that. One is there aren't enough women in the workforce at that time to have a million operators. The second problem is it was heart-stoppingly expensive. It's going to bankrupt the company. So we can't do that. We need to figure out an automated way so that people can dial their own long-distance calls. The answer that Bell Labs came up with was something called the number four switching machine, number four, four total crossbar. For scale here, please note this is a human being. This is a 4A, right? This is a 4A, yeah. yeah. This is up, what, 20 feet, 30 feet high? And the terrifying thing is, this is actually only a portion of the machine. The actual machine took up just about a city block. This was the machine that was going to be able to route calls automatically. You're going to dial a long distance call. It's going to figure out how to get your call from one place to another through multiple intermediate points. It's going to figure out how to bill you for the call. It's going to do this just completely automatically. Um, today, if you asked an engineer, hey, I want to I do this thing, they'd say, no problem. We've got a computer network. We're going we're gonna to have a computer, et cetera. Problem is computers hadn't been invented because this is being built in the 1930s and 1940s. The transistor hadn't even been invented at this point. So this is all being done with vacuum tubes and relays and electromechanical switches. Um, you know, today, the computer guy would be like, oh, we have a database. The database will tell you if you're calling from Florida to California, here's how you route it. Back then, the database looked like this. The metal punch card with holes cut out and by looking at essentially uh, electromagnets would lift those cards up, shine light through them, and by figuring out where the light was blocked by the notches that somebody had cut manually in the card, you could figure out how to route the call, or the machine could figure out how to route the call. To do all this, these machines, these four A's, and they built several hundred of them, had to talk to one another, because you couldn't just get from California to Florida without going through an intermediate point, so the machines actually had to be able to talk to each other. Now, if you go back to our friend the rotary phone here, if you pick up this phone and dial a number, and by the way, the other day I, I, at my brother's house, I, uh, we actually hooked up an old rotary phone he had, and I tried dialing it for the first time in probably 20 years. It's really slow to dial the rotary phone. I don't know if you guys remember this. But anyway, dial, you dial a number, and back in the old days, you would hear something that sounded like this. If it works. Oh, good, I've got the beach ball. Excellent. Come on. Perhaps doing this uh, PowerPoint thing wasn't such a great idea. Oh, technology. I hate you. We'll try turning that off. I would. I will sing it for you. It would sound something like this. And I don't know if any of you remember making a call and hearing these tones in the background. Ooh. <laughs> oh, technology. Okay, now what happens if we try it? Do we get anything? 
how was my rendition? Was it okay? Um, so you'd hear these noises if you dialed a long distance call. And again, if you're an inquisitive kid, you'd say, well, what is that? What am I, what am I hearing there? And the answer is, you're hearing these machines talking to one another, right? These four-way switching machines talking all over, all over the country. Now, it turns out there was a master tone. Those tones that we just heard were something called multi-frequency tones. They're kind of like touch tones, but they're not the same. There was another tone, a master tone. It was 2600 hertz. If you're a musician at seventh octave E, sounds like that, just a plain tone. And the, uh, the machines would communicate using that tone and these other tones, and that's how they would signal one another. Now, here's the thing. You might want to mention that when the trunks are unused, they're also whistling that 2600 to each other. That's right. So when, when there's two machines and they have wires between them and they're not being used, they whistle that tone continuously. There's actually continuously. an argument in the court case saying that, that by using the blue box tones, you're using more electricity. Right, so it's actually cheaper to make a free, free phone call. So there was a kid named Joe Ingressia. It's a blind kid born in 1949. And he, uh, he was really, he loved the phone. The phone was his go-to thing for comfort and everything else. And here is him in his own words talking about this. And I heard it, you know, kind of found in the background. And uh, so I kind of whistled along with it. And it cut the line off. And I was making a cut it off. And uh, I didn't know why. And then I dialed up. Uh, the operator, I is this working at all? So thank you for bearing with me on this audio experience. Um, so Joe figured out, as when he was seven years old, that he could he could hear this tone in the background, and if he whistled that tone, which I used to be able to do but can't anymore something like that with a little bit higher pitch, you could cause the connection to drop. You could hang up. And that's kind of a neat trick, um, but it's not really good for much. But eventually, Joe figured out something else, which is you could actually use this to whistle a free call. And this is him in 1968. If you had perfect pitch like blind phone freak Joe and Grecia, you could whistle calls through the network. Let's see if I make it this time. This is really hard to do. It sounded like all the tones were present, so the phone should be ringing about now. Okay, it hit the phone. It just takes a little while. He even showed off his skills for the local media. Now, From his one phone to a town in Illinois and back to his other phone, a thousand-mile phone call by whistling. It's got a tone of black. So this is this was that was Joe when he was in college. He was a I think a freshman in college down at uh, down in Florida, and he had actually he became famous for this and almost got kicked out of school because what happened was um, one of he was talking to some of his friends and he said, oh yeah, I can whistle a call, and they said, no, you can't, and he said, want to bet? And so they bet a dollar and he whistled a call, and then pretty soon he was whistling these calls for all sorts of his friends. Um, and eventually got in trouble with the phone company for being able to do that, but also got some publicity for it. Now, the pr thing is, not everybody can whistle, but you still have clever people who want to play around with this stuff. And so these things called blue boxes start appearing on the scene. 
Um, this was the first blue box. This was built in 1961 by a guy up in Washington State University, uh, Ralph Barclay. And all it did was, when you dialed this dial, you would get these series of beep tones, just like Joe and Gracia whistling. And that worked pretty well. This was built in 1964 uh, by a guy uh, named John Treichler, who's now actually the uh, technical head of a big uh, signals intelligence and defense company. So he, he basically went on from being a phone freak to being a professional spy for the government. Um, and these things make those same tones. So these, this one in particular makes these MF tones, the the dee -dee 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 kind of tones. Um, and I happen to have, if you want to play with it later, I have actually, here is a blue box that was seized by a telephone company security and that a telephone company security agent gave me. Um, so if you want to play around with this later, it's up here. Um, the other thing, though, that you could do is if you happen to have a uh, Captain Crunch cereal, there was a premium given away, which was the Captain Crunch bosun whistle. And I happen to have one of those, too. And it turns out that... <laughs> If you covered up one of the holes, just randomly, if you covered up one of the holes, you got a very nice 2600 hertz tone. And so with this, you were now Joe and Grecia. You could whistle your own free phone calls just with a little, little item giveaway in, in cereal. So after all this stuff, what you started to have was all these kind of, I don't know, today we'd call them user groups, basically. So you had, you had these people who had been working independently and had all kind of independently invented this stuff. Then there was another group which you had, which was organized crime. Um, if you were a bookmaker in the 1940s or 50s, you spent a lot of time on the telephone. This is basically before the internet. This is how you stayed in contact with you know, Las Vegas and Atlantic City to get the latest betting lines. This is how you stayed in touch with your customers. There's two problems to this. Problem number one is that it costs you a lot of money, right? Remember that graph I showed you. AT&T is getting rich and you're not. Problem number two is the FBI comes and looks at all your phone calls. They can't wiretap you, but they can get your toll records from the phone company. And from that, they can figure out, well, you know, George is a gambler. He talks to Sean, who's another gambler. And from this, they can start to piece together this network map. And so the bookies got introduced to this, uh, these blue boxes and other boxes like black boxes, which made free phone calls. The way they made free phone calls was by essentially disabling billing. And if you disable billing, there's nothing for the FBI to look at. And I remember reading this lovely FBI memo where the FBI agents are complaining, well, we were looking at this guy's long-distance telephone calls, and then all of a sudden it went away. He just stopped making long-distance phone calls, which we don't really believe, but we don't have anything to go on at this point. So that was one group. There was the, the bookmakers. The other group was the phone freaks. Um, because of Joe and Grecia, um, a lot of people started knowing about each other. They had been working independently, and now they started to become kind of a, a social network. Um, this is three phone freaks on a phone trip. You'll notice one of them is holding a blue box at a payphone. And Pritchard. J.D. Pritchard is one. One on the left is uh, Bob Goodgell. Bob Goodgell. And the one on the right is John Draper, whose <laughs> 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 phone freak handle was Captain Crunch. Now, this all would have been, I mean, other than the bookmaking stuff, this would have been more or less harmless fun until in 1971, a magazine article came out um, called Secrets of the Little Blue Box. And it was an Esquire magazine. And it was, an, it's an, it was and is an amazingly written article. You should all read it. It's really cool. It took what was, in essence, the geekiest hobby imaginable, right? And made it seem like some cross between James Bond and Alice in Wonderland. It, it was really cool. And I cannot tell you, I've interviewed hundreds of phone freaks. and. 
you talk to them, and the ones who, who got involved in this because of the Esquire article, they're all like, oh, the Esquire article is so cool. You know, they remember it. Page 116, there's a photograph of a blue box, and, you know, it's got this great writing and whatever, and I'll be like, that's really interesting. Hey, do you remember what the cover was? <laughs> and, and uniformly, the answer is like, no, what was the cover? Why would I? What, <laughs> nothing. But, but as this Esquire uh, ar you know, article, um, because the circulation of Esquire just took this hobby and blew it out to the mainstream. So now all these people who previously wouldn't have been interested in this are now suddenly, well, this sounds really cool. Let's figure it out. Two of those people were Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Um, so this is a photo of Woz in the dorms in Berkeley. I actually lived in these dorms. In fact, I had a map very similar to that. Um, and this is him with his blue box. Um, so Woz and, and Jobs uh, started making blue boxes and selling them door to door in the dorms at Berkeley. Um, it was, and that was actually their first business venture together. Later, Steve Jobs said, if it had not been for blue boxes, there never would have been an Apple computer. The other thing that happened during this time was um, the Yippies got a hold of it. So the political parties, the Yippies, um, they created something called the Youth International Party Line. Um, and this was basically the, the phone freak arm of the Yippie movement. And what they argued was, kind of interestingly, they said, you need to make free phone calls in order to screw AT&T, which is the man, and to screw the US government. Why is this? Well, the telephone company had something called the telephone excise tax that it had to pay to the government, and that was about 10% of long-distance calls. That was a, it was a pretty good chunk of change. It was like a billion dollars of, of revenue to the government. And the Yippie said, this is what is funding about 10% of the cost of the Vietnam War. So by making free phone calls, you're sticking it to AT&T, which is an evil monopolistic corporation, and you are preventing young men from having to go off and fight and die in Southeast Asia. So you can feel good about making these free phone calls. So the Yippies basically started kind of, in some way, a kind of a cultural hijack of taking phone freaking from people who were really just interested in exploring the network and saying, let's make free phone calls and let's feel good about it. Now it turns out that AT&T was not doing nothing this whole time. AT&T found out about this stuff in 1961, and by 1962, it had started to build a system to try and understand how big is this problem. And you can kind of, if you put yourself in the shoes of the AT&T executives, you've just spent billions of dollars building out this nationwide long distance network with these huge complicated switching machines, and now some pesky kid comes along and shows that this, this whole thing is just completely riddled with holes. If you're an AT&T executive, you start to flip out. And your first thought is, well, you know, holy crap, are we going to have to like, replace the entire telephone network? It's going to cost billions more dollars. And the engineers say, you confront an engineer with something like this, their first thing is, well, how big is the problem? Let's measure it. So that's what they did. And starting in 1964, they started deploying these systems which would look for evidence of toll fraud. They were in six different cities. They would randomly monitor calls. And when they heard a call that didn't sound right, like this 2600 hertz tone when it shouldn't be there, they would record it. So they randomly monitored 33 million telephone calls and actually recorded on spinning tape one and a half million of them. And those tapes were listened to by ear by operators to figure out, was this actually a real call or was this fraudulent? Um, they kept this secret. And it came out in 1975 uh, when uh, Lewis Rose, uh, an investigative reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, found out about it. And it created quite a, quite a stir. Um, there were actually congressional hearings before the House of Representatives about it. This is right after Watergate, and the nation was really you know, kind of hinky about it. Was that thing? This was not remodeled. Yeah. Um, and from all this, in the end, 
Nothing happened. Um, the, uh, the, there's you know, the, uh, a week-long furor, but basically AT&T managed to convince the phone company, uh, managed to convince the U.S. government that this is what we had to do. We had to figure out how bad this problem was, and we had to... Um, it was bad, but not horrifyingly bad. It was enough that they could start um, working on improving the network uh, to, make this, to make this whole thing not, not work anymore, to make blue boxes obsolete but not so much that they had to like, oh my god, we have to do a crash course and right away we have to upgrade the network right now. So over, starting around 1970, they started working on slow upgrades. And in fact, by 1976, they introduced uh, a new system. This is a news release uh, for immediate release, Thursday, May 13, 1976. They introduced this new system called Common Channel Interoffice Signaling. And this was to basically t get rid of those tones because those tones were the problem, right? Because if you can hear the tones, the switching equipment can hear you making the tones. So they moved all that signaling to a, a separate system. And this didn't go into effect overnight. It was the start of a long program. But over the course of, say, 10 years from 1976 to 1986, roughly, um, they managed to make the network digital. So this whole stuff didn't work anymore. So by kind of the, the late 1970s, or well, early 80s, the, it had become harder and harder to find a, a telephone number that you could actually make a phone freak call on. Not impossible. People were able to do this into the 1990s by various fairly ingenious methods. Um, but basically, the phone company kind of had it under control by then. And it's kind of interesting to me. It, it's, um, I mean, I think AT&T did really quite a remarkable thing. First off, building this network to begin with. And then basically did the best they could with a pretty tough problem. Because if they had had to, back in 1960 or 62, spend several billion dollars to essentially retrofit the network over the course of a couple of years, that would have been really a financial disaster for them. And so they, they did the best they could um, to, to have it all work out. Um, I, a question that I actually got um, was, well, what happened after this? And my book sort of ends roughly around 1980. There are a number of books that you can read. Um, Cyberpunks is one by Katie Hafner that has a little bit of, there are a lot of books that talk about phone freaking in the 1980s as kind of the precursor to computer hacking. But the thing which is interesting is the stuff that made the CCIS possible was computers and computer networks. So that's basically what CCIS was. It was a separate computer network. But at the same time, the personal computer was becoming available. And so the very same people who would have looked at a, at a telephone and said, how does this work? What is it? They now had something fancier than a telephone to look at. They had a personal computer to look at. And well, what is this? What can we do with this? And so you saw kind of a, almost a brain drain in phone freak. Not only had it gotten harder to be a phone freak, but now you had this other wonderful thing, the personal computer to start playing with. And so as a result, a lot of, a lot of talent and interest got kind of siphoned off into that. I want to share with you um, one more great photo from the FBI. Um, the EverReady Energizer Transistor Vacuum Tube Radio Battery with an evidence tag on it. Um, so um, that's what I have prepared for this evening. I'd love to take questions if you have any. And then after that, there'll be a signing. So any questions? Did you ever get involved in phone freaking? I hate you. <laughs> I, I got involved in phone freaking on the very tail end of the 1970s, um, probably 1978, 79, 80, something like that. Got in a little bit of trouble for it. Um, went on to, and it's actually it's kind of funny because this is actually what what piques my interest in this whole subject, right? Is I went on to do computer work, some computer security work um, later in life, but I always kind of felt like there was this whole story. That I, and I didn't, I didn't know any of this stuff in, in 1978 or 79, or I knew very little of it. 
Um, but this, it kind of just stayed in my mind that like, wow, there's this whole story back there and somebody really ought to do some research about it and figure it out. I didn't know at the time it was going to end up being me. But, um, but you know, I, I do think that it was, there was all this interesting stuff there, kind of this, this precursor to hacking. And so, in, you know, in many ways, I'm really glad that I ended up getting involved in that because it really sort of sent me off in the various directions I went in my life. And I think all this time, I had one of those brains that looked at things and wondered, well, how does that work? And, you know, what's the... You just made me curious. Yeah? Well, what, uh, in the course of your research, did you ever run across any scenes or uh, overseas of uh, people freaking on... Uh, in, uh, you know, Europe, South America. Absolutely. You know, I was, my hacking, I was kind of came on board in 81, but you'd always hear stories on BBSs of, oh yeah, there's this great communist era phone system that was sold to to Cuba, and you could dial into it. Right, right. There's all these stories, but there was no... It's the no last evidence. vulnerable switching machine somewhere in the, yeah, in the world, like, and we have to find know, it. They don't even know what 3SS means. It right. Was, so yeah, absolutely. Um, this was all over the place. It was, it was definitely in Europe, um, uh, and uh, England in particular had a really fairly vibrant uh, phone freaking scene um, around from 1969. I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, from 1969 to about 1971 or 72, there were a bunch of kids at um, Oxford and Cambridge who were playing with this, and they ended up getting arrested and, and, and being criminally prosecuted. One of the things I love about this, actually, is um, you know, there's always this thing, to me, I love the curiosity of phone freaking, making free phone calls. It was, is and was illegal, and that's not so cool. Um, but the, at this, at this, um, these kids who got arrested in 1971, these college students, during the evidence, during their trial, um, they said, okay, well, yeah, and this came out under cross-examination. So there was a, basically a bunch of these phone freaks who were making these free phone calls during a tea party, because of course it's England, they have to have a tea party. Um, and they're using like 10 different kinds of various colored boxes to make these calls and whatever. And it came out, that, according to the prosecution's own evidence, there were 224 calls made during the course of this party. Of those 224 calls, 222 of them were made to non-working numbers that wouldn't have cost anybody money anyway. The two calls that were made to actual, that were actual real calls that would have cost money were paid for. So, you know, it's, it, so, but this stuff was all over the place. It was in other countries besides England. Um, and unfortunately, I, that will be volume two. Um, uh, or volume two will be about divorce. Um, which is... <laughs> So, but yeah, it was it was there. So, yes. How did the phone? If you do it from your phone, how does a phone company not know that these tones are still coming from your phone? If you do it from your home phone, you're saying? Yeah. Um, the the main thing that essentially there, if you think about how you know, not to go into the technical details, but basically the phone network wasn't set up to, to detect that is what it really came down to. So it's sort of just due to the way they had architected it, because they never expected these tones would come from your home phone, right? Oh, okay. um, the uh, it just wasn't set up to detect that. So when they eventually did figure out that, well, yeah, the tones are coming, you know, there is fraud going on, they would have to go to some amount of trouble and eventually end up basically putting a tape recorder on your home phone line to get evidence that you were doing that. So, pattern analysis. Yeah. Too many 800 number calls. If you made too many 800 number calls, or the... They'll suspect you. Or the other thing was, people would call uh, information, as they would call 555-1212, which was a free call. Um, if you did that, 
and then rerouted your call to somebody who that wasn't a free call, right? You routed to a different number. There would be a little tape made. A little. This is actually literally a paper tape, and there'd be a little tick mark in the paper tape saying, "Okay, the the number he called answered, and we should start billing." Except that that's an anomaly because a call to five 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 one two one two should never show up like it answered. And so then, you know, engineers are looking at that, saying, "Well, this isn't right," and then they start investigating. So the well, the, the uh, Ma Bell or whatever it was called thought these calls were coming from like almost within the system as opposed to the home phone? No, they, knew, they, they knew it was coming from a home phone, but they had to figure out, then had to go to some amount of trouble to figure out which home phone it was coming from. So. Also, a while back, as you know, the 555-1212 started souping, you know, started right. so. off the signal after a while, so, because then they started charging you for that. Right. That's the reason why. <laughs> yes? Um, it seems like the, the story you tell is kind of the precursor to you know, the internet age, computers, Apple computer, and all these things hacking. What was the precursor, in, in your opinion, to phone freaking? That's volume three, after the divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the precursor to phone freaking, it, it's really interesting. If you think of, I, I kind of think of phone freaking at this point, as best I can tell, it's sort of the earliest network hacking that went on. Um, the, the only thing I can think of that might predate it would be the telegraph system. Ham radio. And, well, but I'm specifically thinking of somebody, somebody hacking with someone else's system, yep. right? So the hams were playing with their own system that they were building. Um, I've read a little bit about the telegraph, and there were definitely, like, the telegraph operators had their own lingo and everything, and there was sort of a fraternity of them. I'm not aware of anybody who kind of, quote-unquote, hacked into the telegraph system. So I think this was kind of it. Definitely, though, the, 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 mental, the mental approach to this of like, wow, I wonder what we could do here. I think that's always existed. It's just that the phone system was the first automated network that allowed people to do that. Cheshire had this. What about Cheshire? Yeah, he did that. Telex had Oh, he did Telex. I'm talking about Telegraph, though, right? Oh. I'm talking about with Telegraph. Oh, key. not Twix, though. Yeah, not Twix. Okay. Yes? How many people were actually prosecuted and did find or went to jail? Um, I wish I had put that. I promised you I would only show you one chart, so I can't show you this chart, but you can come up and see it later. Um, 18, I, have, I have some data from AT&T that showed maybe during its peak, which is probably around 1976 or so, they were probably prosecuting about 200 people a year um, for this stuff. Um, and it was, you know, kind of, it kind of went from, you know, basically nothing starting in 1970 to about nothing starting in 1980 with a peak at about 200 a year. So, what were they charged with exactly? Ah, uh, they were charged with fraud by wire was the standard charge. Title it was a, 18, section 13. Title 18, section 13. <laughs> exactly. John knows this. Um, yeah, and so this was, it was actually, this is kind of an interesting story. Yeah, I talk, phone free class. I, I talk about this in the book. Um, uh, so the phone company wanted to be able to use this, this fraud by wire statute, which basically says if you send... If, if essentially, if you do something fraudulent over the phone that crosses state lines, that's, that's a, a felony and a federal crime. And they actually went in the 1960s, they went to the Department of Justice and said, hey guys, how about this 1343, can we use that? And they actually talked to the guy who wrote the law. And he's like, no, that, that's not at all what we meant when we said fraud by wire. Fraud by wire is somebody calling up and selling bogus life insurance to grandma. That's fraud by wire, not these blue box things, go away. So the phone company came back a year later and said, okay, well, we have a proposal for a new law. And the FBI and Justice Department said, so let us understand this. You guys messed up and made this network with all these holes in it, and then it's our problem to go and arrest people. No. 
So AT&T went off and came back again, and this time, because of this Green Star system, they had been able to find uh, evidence of bookmakers, right, which the government did want. And they said, hey, we've got bookmakers for you to go after. And suddenly the government's like, wow, well maybe 18 U.S.C. 1343 would be applicable here. <laughs> and sure enough it was, and it ended up actually going up uh, all the way to the Supreme Court who said we're not going to review the decision. And so at that point, for AT&T, this was very cool because it meant by 1969 they actually had a clear court case that said, you know, we can use this law. And that's, they proceeded to use it. So were there other, you know, out of this sort of huge sweep of, in recording and, and analysis of phone calls, were there other collateral, collateral damage besides the bookkeepers? The were, other parties, were other parties out of it? Yeah, hard to know exactly because AT&T was very, very uh, careful about this. And actually, according to one of the guys I interviewed, um, their, their rule was if it ever looks like doing a prosecution will reveal the Green Star system, we're simply going to decline to prosecute. So what AT&T would do is when Green Star found something, they would call the local phone company and they would just tell the local phone company, hey, we have evidence that there may be, uh, you know, irregular signaling was the term they used on this line. Would you please check this line? And so then the prosecution would occur at a lower level. Um, and actually, I've got the, in the book, I interviewed um, this guy, Bill Kaming, who is their attorney, and he talked about how, yeah, it was always kind of stressful whenever you're doing any sort of prosecution based fundamentally on Green Star that, like, the defense ends up asking just the right questions and this whole thing is going to spill out. So, yes. Do you know how much money was stolen from stolen from the? I, you can even say stolen without the air quotes. I think it was stolen. <laughs> Borrowed. Um, it's a great question. I don't actually know. They AT and T was estimating it at more than a million dollars a year, um, but the problem is that that AT and T had was. If you think about what a blue box does, it defeats their billing system, right? So once you've defeated the billing system, it becomes very difficult to know exactly how much there is. Um, I think they, you know, they had, they certainly were going after, you know, certainly hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe a million dollars a year of actual prosecutions, right? Other questions? What were your favorite or most surprising FOIA results? Um, I think. There were a bunch of them. Um, the the thing that actually that really got me from these Freedom of Information Act requests was just how seriously everybody took this stuff. Um, one of them was there was a conference in 1976 at the FBI's Los Angeles office where it looked like the phone freaks had been able to break into the military telephone system called Audubon. And like the National Security Agency, which at that time was just ultra secret and hush hush, actually sent a representative to this meeting. It took me three years to get this document from the NSA. And it's pretty cool because the NSA analyst is like writing up his, basically his trip report to LA. Hey, I went out to LA and attended this meeting. And you know, he's like, you know, speaking, I'm translating from kind of, you know, staid NSA analyst speak, but it boiled down to, this stuff is pretty cool. We ought to, we ought to try this, you know, this is, this is great. <laughs> you know, so. I can comment on the auto I spent a whole year playing with it when I was up in, up in Alaska. 907-940 is Nicholson Creek, 950 Murphy Dome. And these were switches that handled both Audubon and commercial. And they were only just class marked. And if you get around the class mark, you can, you can go into Audubon and from there you can use high priority calls and do NORAD and all that other stuff. Yes, John. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, along the same line, I'm wondering, you, know, you talked about people making free phone calls. Yes. I'm sure it goes farther than that. When you, 
you know, breaking into the military system, right. perhaps overhearing other phone calls? What, what, where did it go beyond simply making a free phone call? Yeah, so beyond making a free phone call, um, one of the things which was kind of just a harmless thing was just being able to route your own calls uh, around manually either through the United States or through the world. So, you know, make a call uh, all the way to, say, New Zealand and then bring it back to the phone next to you and, you know, say hello into the phone and then and then get to hear it delayed for however long it takes to get there. Um, there were there were conference calls that Phone Freak set up. This is, again, now we probably all like, oh, God, another conference call. Please don't put me on a conference call. But back then, this was a novel thing. So the Phone Freaks would set up these big conference calls just to talk to each other. Um, there was, as John mentioned, the Audubon, the military network um, that was fun for the Phone Freaks to break into. And then the final thing really was wiretapping. Um, it turned out that with a blue box, you could... If you knew the right code, and it was just a three-digit code, it turned out to be 127, there were a bunch of numbers in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were also some others in Miami and some in Texas, if I recall correctly, that you could wiretap with a blue box. And so you would simply call up a number in that area, you'd use your blue box, you'd dial key pulse 127, and then the phone number you wanted to wiretap and start, and you'd be connected to it. And it turns out that John Draper, oh, hello. Um, John Draper actually did this. Actually scrambled, and then, but you have to burst to 2600 to, to knock the scrambler off. Right. But it so only worked. It only worked on the 252 exchange, and that was the exchange. It was the only, and that was the exchange. And, and who was in that exchange? Was that the FBI? Exactly. <laughs> that exchange could work. And so, like a moth to a flame. <laughs> John wiretapped the FBI. They were not pleased. Phil. What was, what was the most surprising thing you learned while doing research for the book? Two things. Um, one, one was, I, I actually didn't know very much about the history of the, the telephone system being built. And I mean, originally I had proposed to my editor, I'm going to write a book about the phone freaks. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. Why don't you write a book about the phone freaks and intertwine it with the development of the telephone network? I bet that would be interesting. And he was totally right, at least to me. Anyway, I found it interesting. But I was, I was blown away by what AT&T and Bell Labs did building this nation's telephone network. It's amazing, right? They did all this stuff. Again, with, you know, like the Star Trek term for it was with stone knives and bearskins, right? They're building these giant switching machines the size of this building also that you can make your phone calls, right? And, and you know, developing digital computers and all, these, all this technology. So one thing, I was just supremely impressed by how smart these guys were and how hard they worked at it. The other thing, though, was the early phone freaks. You, look, you go back to 1961 or 62 or 63, these original phone freaks, they didn't have other phone freaks to talk to. They were operating entirely on their own. Often they didn't, you know, this is pre-internet, so you can't just go and Google this stuff. Um, and so you're figuring out all this stuff on your own, especially for some of the blind kids. They would just listen to these tones, and they'd be like, well, okay, you know, maybe I can tape record the tone and then extend it out on tape so I can listen to it more, and then I can try and duplicate these tones. They would do all these crazy things working entirely on their own just because they were curious. And that, that was the thing that just blew me away, is how clever they were and how hard they worked at it. I guess at some level, on both sides, right? How clever and how hard AT&T worked, and also how clever and how hard the early phone freaks worked. I had no idea that it was going to be like that. Was AT&T cooperative in terms of 
giving interviews and talking to, with they, you about the book? Or? Um, almost everybody was within, almost everybody, period, both at AT&T and the phone freaks and the FBI. Um, AT&T actually opened up its corporate archives to me, um, which was really cool. Um, I went away with these giant stacks of documents. Um, you know, the FBI did all these FOIA requests and I think did a really good job. Um, there were one or two people who either on the phone freak side said, uh, there's one phone freak who I tried for weeks to get him to talk to me and he wouldn't. And then one day at 6 a.m., I'm sleeping, uh, Sunday morning, 6 a.m., my phone starts to ring and it keeps ringing and it won't stop ringing. It just rings and rings and rings. And so finally I get out of bed and I pick up the phone and it's this guy, and he's like, yeah, I hear you've been trying to get a hold of me. I'm like, yeah, I have. It's kind of early. Well, I only have now to talk, so if you want to talk, let's talk now. <laughs> okay. Um, so he said, well, before I talk to you, I have three conditions. Um, one is you can't use my name. Two is anything that you say involving me, I have to be able to review. And three is I get 10% of the royalties of the book. <laughs> and I said, I can't agree to that. He's like, too bad. Click. Never heard from him again. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, there were a few people like that, but blessedly few. Mostly, I was able to sleep at 6 a.m. <laughs> so. Yes? What happened to the AT&T uh, tape recordings, the real reels? Uh, the, these are the ones from that, the surveillance system? Yeah, yeah. So um, they were very good uh, to hear them tell it, and I have no reason to doubt, that they basically, every time, they, after they would be listened to, for the ones that did not show any sort of evidence of fraud, they would erase them. I suspect that the ones that did show evidence of fraud were either saved for prosecution I don't know for sure. I do know that St. Louis dispatch guy, uh, Louis Rose, told me he actually had one that his source gave him when he, when he blew the thing and uh, when he blew the story. And, um, and he claimed it was in his storage locker. And I've, I've never followed up. It would be a fascinating thing to, to hear. Yeah, so so uh, that's one thing that, as a retired free, um, one of the most interesting <laughs> things these days is, is all the recordings that everybody made. You know, lots of people have tape recorders, micro cassettes, reels to reels, all yes. running and recording their exploits and the things that they encountered along the way. So, do you have any interesting anecdotes along those lines? I don't have well, I have lots of anecdotes, but um, <laughs> but I won't. But one thing I was going to say is yes, yeah, so you should go to go to uh, phonetrips.com. And so, if, so for those of you who don't know this, if you go to phonetrips.com, um, there is a lovely website that has these very recordings uh, that he mentioned, and just everything. So you can hear sounds of the old network. Some of them are narrated. Some of them are just pure. Um, it did blow me away, though, like how many people I would talk to, including like telephone company security people, um, who ha saved tapes. Like, so you guys, whatever your job is right now, save this stuff in case it's important later. Whatever you think is going to be really just mundane and boring, some guy like me is going to come to you 20 years from now and be like, did you work on this? Could you share with me? So, like, you know, in the case of some telephone company uh, security people, they're like, oh, yeah, here they gave me. Here are tape recordings of interrogations I did of phone freaks. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, or, you know, in the case of phone freaks, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I found this old nine-track tape that has recordings of us playing around with the, the telephone operator in New Zealand. Um, you know, it's like, I don't know why you saved that, but I'm glad you did, so. Other questions? Just one more, following up on that. How much that you wanted to see was lost to the ages? Were there things you couldn't get? Uh, yeah, there, there were, and I think one of the biggest things was simply people. Um, you know, I'm coming at this, you know, 40 years after its heyday, and there were a lot of people that I wanted to interview that had passed away. Um, especially on the phone company because they tended to be older than the, you know, 16-year-old kids. Um, 
and that was, you know, in, in fact, actually since starting this book, several people had passed away. It got to the point where some of the phone were like, I don't want to talk to you because the people you talk to you die. <laughs> <laughs> but Did you ever talk to George Alex in San Jose? He passed away, sadly. When? Um, sometime in the 90s, well before I started the book. Really? So this is the telephone company security agent who used to hassle John. <laughs> yes? Um, in addition to the the sort of the, this homebrew technical component in building blue boxes, there's always a really good you know, social engineering element to it. Mm -hmm. Is there any particular social engineering stories that <laughs> over the years that even you, know, you hear about X place that just blew your mind, like somebody got away with it? So for for those who are not familiar with the term social engineering, social engineering is basically pretending to be somebody that you're not and getting somebody to do something for you that they shouldn't ought to do. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there, there are a lot of stories. The thing that actually blew me away, though, about that was, was these kids who would call up and they would just have the cojones to, to, to just try this stuff and see if it worked. And, you know, one of them, this guy, there's this guy, Denny Teresi, who is sort of the, the master of this stuff. And he just had a very deep, authoritative voice. And he would talk about, it, like, well, you know, you call him up and you talk to, you're talking to a switchman in the central office. He can't imagine, right, he, working in his favor, he can't imagine that some 15-year-old kid is calling him up to do this, right? So he has a predisposition to believe that whoever's calling him is a legitimate employee. And... He would just, they would try these things, and if they found, I was talking to another phone freak, this guy Bill Acker, and Bill's comment was, well, if the switchman seemed really good, if he seemed really switched on and competent and knew what he was doing, you'd just play dumb. And you'd be like, well, I'm here at this such and such switching station, and I don't know how to do this, could you tell me? People want to be helpful, so they'd you know, tell him. And now, he actually now has knowledge and has all the buzzwords, and so the next time, as, as Denny said, if you get a switchman who's kind of green, they're gonna fall for whatever you say, right? And so it's not wasn't really in particular like any one story. It was just the fact that they were willing to do this at all, right? I mean, imagine when you were 16 years old, you know, like could, opening up sleeves to create conference. They could create these <laughs> these conference calls. They do all sorts of stuff, and it's just just imagine being that young and yet still being willing to. Yeah, I'll try risking this. I'll call from my home phone and try and convince somebody who's an adult who's you know actually a professional at what he or she is doing, and I'm going to convince them to do. It seems crazy, but they did it and it worked. Did you do any follow-up with any of these people that were phone freaks to find out in later life if they became successful and in, in that field or a related field? So, that's a great question. Um, mostly, as near as I've been able to tell, most of the people I've talked to have done very well for themselves. Most of the phone freaks went on to have kind of what I would call conventional lives. Right? They, a lot of them became engineers. A lot of them went into telecom, not all of them, um, and you know, just went on. Uh, and, and, you know, this was, a, this was their hobby. Um, you know, a few didn't, a few weren't so lucky, um, but, um, but mostly they did pretty well for themselves. It, one thing, though, and this is interesting, the people, because I talk to all these people, right, and, and I'm mostly talking to them, you know, say they're, you know, 60s or 70s, they're close to retirement or they're retired. The happiest people uniformly, FBI agents. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, and I think it might just be that like if you're an FBI agent, you have to sort of be good at dealing with people anyway. But they're just uniformly just a super happy, fun bunch of people to talk to. <laughs> I don't know why. Not bitter about anything. Why do you suppose it took so long for someone to write this book? Because nobody is as dumb as I am. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it, it's um, 
it took a tremendous amount of research. Uh, and one of the things I've learned is that you know, the, in the world of, of book publishing, long research projects are just not really economical to do, right? So, um, you know, you really, if you want to make book publishing economical, you need to be able to crank out a book every year. This book took me five years to do. So, you know, negative NPV, as we would have said at Sloan. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's that, and I think it just, it also kind of had to be the right person at the right time who had an interest in this and knew enough about it and was willing to, to make the, the energy and effort and had the loving support of my wife who's just flown in from Bangalore, India. Uh, so. <laughs> Was, was there any other way? That, was there any other way that people tried to make money off of this? I mean, selling the boxes door to door or selling phone calls, but could they, you know, call the bank and pretend to be something? I mean, was there any other? There was a fear that people would do that. I never found any any evidence that anybody, like you know, for example, wiretapping. Right, one of the things you could potentially do is wiretap and then get information and sell it. I, I never found any evidence that anybody did that. Um, and in fact, the people selling blue boxes were mostly frowned upon by the phone freaks. Because it was kind of this feeling of you're just going to get us in trouble, right? You know, and you're going to give these boxes, you're going to sell these boxes to people who don't know what they're doing, and that's going to create more and more problem. So Waz was selling them, right? Waz was definitely selling them. Yeah, he and Steve Jobs sold somewhere between 40 and 100 of these boxes. Well, I might add that his boot boxes put out a square wave instead of a sine wave. Anybody that used his boot boxes would almost certainly get busted. That was you're, how I got busted. <laughs> I wasn't using his blue box. One of my friends was, and he abused by my trust, and his phone number was in his notebook. And I told him to memorize it, and he didn't do it. And when he got busted, his name was Richard Caesar, friend of Denny's, actually. He was the one that bought Waz's blue box and got busted for using it, using it at home, even. Right. Other questions? You've touched on this already, but I, I am curious about, you've got this large group of people who are out there now, who are now able to make free phone calls. Mm -hmm. So who do they call? Was it mostly prank calls or calling each other? It's a great question. Um, and it's so funny because you, you'd, you'd interview these kids and uniformly their thing was, we didn't have anybody to call. We're 16-year-old kids. Who do we know this long distance, right? Um, but no, but really, though, what? so in the 1960s, the early 1960s, I think a lot of the, that was actually true, that, like, you know, the you'd call non-working numbers. You'd see how close you could get to the North Pole. That was one game that they would play. Um, but by 1968, when this network started to form, the phone freaks started using phone freaking to call each other, right? Because this is great, like, you know, there aren't very many phone freaks, and so I live, you know, in Northern California, and I want to call somebody in Southern California. I can't afford that if I'm a 15-year-old kid, but by using a blue box or something, now I can talk to my buddies. So it was, a lot of it was kind of, you know, self-generated traffic, if you will. They'd call test numbers, too. They'd call test numbers and things like that, but, but I, think, I think what the phone company was really mad at was, was the calls that actually cost money. You ever heard of the term stacking tandems? <laughs> Absolutely. That was another thing that you could do. Do you want to tell us about that? Okay. Stacking tandems are where you're able to successfully go from, let's say, from the United States to a country in Europe, and then from another, from one country in Europe to another country in Europe, and then from that country back to the United States, and then back over to Asia, and then back to the United States again. And it was a contest where we can loop or make as many uh, hops as possible and still be able to call the phone right next to you. So right. you have two lines at your house and you start with one phone and you go from the United States over like uh, an overseas sender which is 914183, I think was one of them, 
if we go over to Europe and then call up uh, Britain and then maybe to Spain and then maybe back up to uh, Sweden and back to the United States and back over to Asia and back. Then you would hang up. And you would just all the stuff. Quick, 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 quick. If you. Where it was going? How did you know that you were going to be Doorbell. You'd spend a lot of time you know, <laughs> figuring this stuff out. And some of it also came from purloined manuals and things like that, traffic routing guides. Um, there's a story I talk about in the book. One of the guys um, uh, managed to get into an AT&T switching center by borrowing an employee badge because he had a friend who worked there. And he basically went through the switching center looking at, well, what books on the shelves are books that I want? And then afterwards, he told his friend, okay, throw those away and I'm going to be getting your trash tonight. And so his friend did that for him, and so as a result, he got all these routing guys and things like that, and those things would quickly become, you know, kind of photocopied and, and spread around the phone freaks. Slideweb.com slash phone trips, mm -hmm. classic tandem stacking by doorbell. Yeah, so is a very good example. If you, if you want to hear what, this, what these ching, 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 chinks of tandem, standing, tac, tandem stacking sounds like, you can listen to that on phonetrips.com. Or by the Pink Floyd album. Or by the, or, or by the Pink Floyd album. <laughs> All right, any other questions? Okay, great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.